musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, yes, you are correct. It's been, well, it's been almost a month since my last Salon 1.0 podcast. But thanks to the Symposia team, I've been able to post new podcasts each week and, uh, well, and still goof off a whole bunch. (laughs) But I figured that it's uh, now time to get this show back online. First of all, I'd like to thank Judy T., Austin S., John R., and Kate M., all of whom have made donations to the salon during this past month. Additionally, three new friends have become patrons of my writing projects, and these good souls are Anomaly, Petra M., and Bjorn Z. So a big thank you goes out to our donors and patrons alike. You are the ones who are keeping the lights on here in the salon. And now I'm anxious to get on to today's podcast. The recording that I'll be playing was given to me by Dr. Charlie Grobe, who is also one of the speakers on this most esteemed panel, which also includes Bruce Eisner, Dave Nichols, Rick Doblin, Richard Jensen, and Timothy Leary. This panel discussion was held on February 3rd, 1991, which was over a quarter of a century ago. So you may think about skipping this program because it's so old, but while some of the information may be a little out of date. However, from an historical perspective, I think that it's important to get a better understanding about how much progress has actually been made in fighting this insane war on drugs over the past 26 years. Now let me say this up front. Even if you have only a passing interest in the history of the beginning of this new psychedelic renaissance, well then you may want to listen to today's program at least twice. The first time, try to keep in mind the fact that this panel discussion was held even before the launch of today's World Wide Web, or the Internet as some people like to think of it. In fact, this discussion was held five years before California even approved medical marijuana. Then, uh, after you hear this discussion for the first time, give it a little thought to how much has actually changed since this took place. The entire world has begun to undergo a massive change of unknowable extent, not only through digital technology, but through psychedelic technology as well, as you learned in the recent Salon 2.0 podcast with Dr. Thomas Roberts. And then, when you listen to today's podcast for a second time, try to recall all of the positive things that have since flowed through the relatively small groups of people who managed to get to one of these rare places in which psychedelics were discussed back then. I think that this is an important piece of our community's history. It is surely something to tell your grandchildren about, uh, (laughs) even if they aren't even yet glints in your eye. Over a quarter of a century has passed since this panel discussion was held. Back then there was no maps.org or arrowid.org to give us information, because back then there was still no public World Wide Web, no browsers, and, well, very little publicly available information about psychedelics. The primary way that this information was being distributed to non-researchers back then was through tapes from these rare conferences and from recorded talks by people like Terence McKenna. In fact, uh, I just checked Arrowwood's comprehensive listing of psychedelic conferences by year, And apparently this was the only conference about psychedelics that was held that entire year. 
which uh, is about average until you get to this new millennium that uh, we are now beginning to struggle into. When this panel discussion was held, well, it was also around the time that the U.S. government had begun a major crackdown on MDMA manufacture and distribution. So, uh, I'm sorry to say, at the time this conference took place, there I was, laying low in Florida, waiting for the statute of limitations to expire on some of my nefarious adventures in Texas, uh, back during the days when ecstasy first hit the streets. So, while I was no longer actively involved in the psychedelic scene, at that very same time, there was Bruce Eisner, the author of Ecstasy, the MDMA story, and he was right up there on the stage with several others who were also willing to put themselves on the line so as to get this information out to a wider audience. Timothy Leary even violated the terms of his then-current parole to be there. Now, this may not seem like such a big deal today, but trust me, these guys were our brave heroes back then, and they still are today. So let me stop talking for now and turn it over to the panel moderator, Bruce Eisner, <laughs> who, as you'll see, had his hands full trying to keep the irrepressible Timothy Leary in check. Hello, my name is Bruce Eisner, and I'm here to moderate uh, the last uh, panel of the Bridge Conference. Uh, which will concern current trends in research and the future of psychi the psychedelic experience. Um, first of all, I'd like to um, bring up uh, Leonard Enos, who is going to read a letter uh, to the conference from Albert Hoffman in Switzerland. Yes, hello. I um, called Albert Hoffman last week because he has some papers of mine that I gave him at Santa Rosa, and, uh, and I inadvertently called him on his 85th birthday, January 11th. I uh, asked him if he wished to uh, submit a small statement and I just received it from him yesterday afternoon and it reads as follows Dear companions in the battle for the legalization of psychedelic drugs <laughs> I am pleased to send you regards and best wishes for a successful meeting from Switzerland there is no need to waste words pointing out the importance of the aim of such a conference, the aim to document the use of psychedelic medicaments in psychiatry, psychology, and as unique tools in the search for self-realization and the study of consciousness. The experience of unity and wholeness caused by these agents makes them best fit for the therapeutic concept of psychology represented in transpersonal psychology and psychotherapy, where the experience of a deeper, all-encompassing reality constitutes the basic healing element. The prohibition of the psychedelics is connected, unfortunately, with today's fantastic war against drug use. It is very important, therefore, to point again and again at the fundamental differences between the addiction-producing, highly toxic drugs and the non-dependency-producing psychedelic substances with relatively low toxicity. The fact is that the psychedelics not only do not produce addiction, they are promising medicaments for the treatment of addiction. I am convinced that the battle for making the psychedelics again legally available could be easily won if the people responsible among the health authorities would agree to test these special pharmaceuticals on themselves. <laughs> for the purpose of making psychedelics once again legally available for psychotherapeutic use, I would suggest that the several thousands of scientific reports on LSD, psilocybin, and mescaline 
carried out in the period before prohibition should be collected, analyzed, and evaluated. Using computer techniques, it would be easy to take to evaluate the results of all these numerous investigations with regard to different important criteria. All this could be composed into a convincing general document which could impress the health authorities. Such documentation should finally convince the health authorities of the nonsense of the prohibition of a group of psychopharmaceuticals based not on their pharmacological properties and therapeutic qualifications, but on the wrong, incautious use of these medicaments on the street. It seems to me very important to support the realization of such a project. I end my address by repeating my best wishes for a successful, enjoyable meeting. Albert Hoffman. Thank you. Oh, there are seats in the balcony if anybody would like to take them. They're psychedelically colored seats, too. As high as you can get. <laughs> well, I'd like to begin this last panel um, on current trends and future research with psychedelic, of the psychedelic experience. Um, and uh, basically, uh, I think we have a, a collection of uh, both uh, current researchers and spaced out prophets and... Uh, uh, a balanced, balanced mixture, I hope. And, uh, um, uh, so I'd like to uh, begin the panel uh, by introducing uh, the, the guests we have here today. Um, See that? You thought it was another panel, Bruce. <laughs> I don't see any current researchers up here. <laughs> Um, we'll start off with uh, David Nichols, who's a professor of uh, medicinal chemistry at uh, Purdue University. And uh, David has done extensive research with uh, many different psychoactive compounds uh, with, uh, uh, in animal experiments and uh, has developed uh, a variety of new compounds. Um, then um, next we have Charlie Grobe. Charles Grobe, uh, who's an uh, assistant professor of psychiatry at uh, UC Irvine Medical School, and who is currently petitioning for uh, the use of uh, MDMA for clinical research. Um, next, we have... Uh, Richard Jensen. Richard is a, um, is a uh, psychologist who participated in LSD research program uh, at Maryland Psychiatric Research Center in, in Maryland and is a co-founder of uh, Transpersonal Psychology and is currently director of Arinda Institute in Baltimore. Next, we have Rick Doblin, and Rick is president of MAPS, the Multiple Disciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and he's currently working on a degree in psychedelic studies at Harvard University. It's actually public policy. I did try to get into the psychology PhD program, 
to do psychedelic research, and they said that they didn't want the ghost of Timothy Leary walking through the halls. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> what about Richard Alpert and Ralph Metzner? And uh, <laughs> I could go on with the list. So, so that's why I went to the school of government, and that's where I'm. Not a ghost. <laughs> Not to mention William James. <laughs> And of course, last, we have, uh, for the man who needs no introduction, Dr. Timothy Leary, uh, former professor of Harvard University and author of over 30 books, uh, including The Politics of Ecstasy. Uh, it says here, uh, exploring the increased capacity of the human mind, computers, and virtual reality, and a cyberpunk hacker, exponent of smile. Okay, well, I'd like to begin uh, the panel by telling people how I got here today. Um, it started, uh, started for me in the 1960s uh, with my first uh, LSD experiences in 1967. Uh, I was uh, 19 years old, and my first uh, LSD experiences were uh, mind-blowing, uh, revelationary uh, religious experiences, which completely changed the course of my life. Um, in any event, it, uh, in the, from there, I ended up uh, having uh, dinner with uh, Albert Hoffman uh, on the Rhine River uh, in Switzerland in 1976. And uh, it was my, my quest for pure LSD that, that brought me to Switzerland. <laughs> and then the next year, I uh, uh, brought Hoffman to uh, UC Santa Cruz, where we had the first psychedelic conference uh, in 10 years uh, called LSD a generation later and we had an amazing uh, turnout of psychedelic researchers it was a reconnection after a long period of, uh, of no, uh, no activity in the area and uh, it was at that uh, at that conference actually I organized the conference along with uh, uh, some of the other people here Lynn Francis and uh, Peter Stafford uh, and uh, I was very—it's a grueling event to organizing one of these things. It's you—you uh, you spend weeks and weeks uh, doing a lot of footwork, running around. And uh, the last day, there was a a, a lunch. Uh, it was a brunch at La Chamalier, a French restaurant, and I decided not to go, and I ate mushrooms instead. Uh, in any event, uh, I had this. Uh, experience on the mushrooms. I was with a friend of mine uh, who uh, wrote uh, for this, uh, this newspaper we published later on in Santa Cruz called Blotter. And he, he wrote it under the name uh, Sporius E. Mycelium. And uh, <laughs> he made a, uh, a decoction of uh, psilocybin mushrooms and we took it. And uh, I had uh, just read uh, Timothy's book, um, uh, the one where he talks about uh, uh, spin from, from east to west. You remember that? <laughs> intelligence agents. Intelligence I remember agents. very little. <laughs> <laughs> You're on your own, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the, <laughs> at the same time, I uh, also uh, had been reading uh, uh, Otis Huxley's book, uh, Island. And I, on the trip, I put those two ideas together. I was looking out west. Uh, it was a beautiful, clear day, looking out uh, to the west. And uh, 
I started thinking about the spin of the earth and uh, the idea of the island out there to the, you know, further west. How can we go further west? And, and the idea of a, uh, a utopian uh, psychedelic uh, community, which uh, Huxley had evoked in, in Ireland. And I said to myself, well, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to create an uh, island group, an island foundation. And uh, I put that, basically I put that on the back burner for the next 12 years. And it wasn't until uh, this year that I actually actively began to uh, organize that uh, organization and I brought uh, this conference together as a uh, kind of a kickoff for, for the Island Foundation and the Island Group. Um, now, um, I wanted to read, uh, this, this is a, uh, a publication that uh, Peter Stafford and Lynn Francis and I edited after uh, we did that conference in 1977. It was called uh, Blotter, and it was uh, the uh, it was the the uh, annals of the uh, psychedelic education center, which was a group we started in Santa Cruz back then. Uh, and in this third issue, um, there was a article written by Michael Horowitz, and I wanted to read a, an excerpt from the um, from that. It's a little lengthy, but I think we can we can handle it here. Now, Bruce. <laughs> it's dated April 7th. We're going to have a clock on you. What, uh, two minutes? <laughs> if, if two minutes doesn't put them in a state of orgasmic enlightenment, uh, we'll move on, okay? All right. <laughs> it's dated April 17th, 1993. Ludlow Global Library Systems, San Francisco Branch, Federation of California Communes. Dear children, we had a time last night at the gala celebration commemorating the 50th anniversary of the discovery of LSD. It was held at Visionary Stadium and many of the 50,000 people who attended were dressed in the psychedelic style of the late 60s, just like those pictures of us in the family album. Bill Graham and Chet Helms organized a spectacular concert which featured many of the surviving musicians from the old San Francisco acid rock bands. There was a holographic light show too and people danced the old folk boogies all night long. Doses of, of a primitive type of LSD manufactured in the early days of the suppression were freely distributed. The mental effects seem rather crude compared to the products available to us today, but most did get a buzz, and no one complained. There were even a few freakouts which delighted the celebrants. <laughs> Bruce, does this get better? <laughs> uh, one more try. <laughs> It was wonderful to see Albert Hoffman and Timothy Leary at the Table of Honor, which was modeled like a three-dimensional LSD molecule. <laughs> Dr. Hoffman, in splendid shape for a man of 87, was given a silver bicycle replica of the one he rode <laughs> <laughs> along the, Bas the Basel streets on the first LSD trip. When it was said that um, it meant more to him than the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, there were cheers of right on from those standing beside the punch table. <laughs> the entire audience was sitting on the edge of the seat while they recounted for at least a thousandth time his accidental discovery of the prototypic psychedelic in the midst of the Second World War. Timothy, who at 73 looked much as he did at a Harvard psychology professor, had flown in from base L5 on a space shuttle for the event. <laughs> he was presented with a key to his archives, which the FBI had finished sorting and studying after two decades. 
Clem talked about his second civil war of the 60s and compared himself to Homer reciting the Iliad. He brushed off... <laughs> he brushed off reports that he had been fired from his command post in L5 for turning on some teenage space colonists to a new high-classified time travel pill. The past may be more interesting than the future, he said, not so enigmatically, concluding, as this party proves tonight. <laughs> Michael Aldrich, chairman of the board of Ludlow Global, spoke next. He recalled the days when Ludlow Library was just a few volumes housed in a tiny room at Ferlegheli Avenue and how he had worked for reefers and cocaine when there was no money to pay for his creative salary. The stadium was hushed as he recapitulated the world flip-out spring of 1984 when 100,000 doses of Sandoz pharmaceutical LSD secretly purchased by the CIA in the early 50s and stockpiled during different locations on the planet of the future's use as a pharmacological weapon began to leak into the atmosphere during the UFO visitations. <laughs> you could hear a pill drop as he described... How the delegates of the U.N. General Assembly tripped out during an emergency meeting in New York, declaring all living things on planet Earth to be herefore designated endangered species and agreed unanimously to disarm and stop pollution. That was followed by... That was followed by some psychedelic vaudeville performed by two surprise guests flown for the occasion. The 100 year-old Maztec shamanist Maria Sabina chanted the ancient mushroom Vedas, during which Yaki sorcerer Don Juan caused the entire audience to hallucinate, hallucinate a, a symposium on the subject of mind control given by himself, Hassassani Sabath, and William S. Burroughs. <laughs> After the applause died down, it was back to presentations. Sir Humphrey Osmond received an award for his pioneering research with mescaline for turning out Otis Huxley and for coining the term psychedelic. The period of silence to the memory of Otis was very appropriate and extremely moving. Laura Huxley came on stage afterward to accept his award for creating the last novel, Island, the most compelling blueprint for the lifestyles of the tribes and communes that quietly flourished during the suppression. She herself was honored for giving her husband LSD and reading from him the Tibetan Book of the Dead while he lay on his deathbed, allowing him to die with painless, anxiety-free dignity in the manner we are so accustomed to nowadays. Dr. Stitt. <laughs> How many more are these? Uh, One more. Okay. Well, I'll, um, in any event, um, the culmination of the awards uh, ceremonies had to be there, really. <laughs> the larger-than-life statue of hippie, symbol of the legions of young people who risked their minds and their freedom to experiment with the metaprogramming tools provided by the alchemists and travelers, among them preserving the psychedelic visions until the general rebirth of 1984. After brushing away a tear or two, we descended upon the dance floor and rocked out with our brothers and sisters until dawn, Love and ecstatic evolution for always, mom and dad. <laughs> well, in any event, the reason I, I read that, and, and, and as no disrespect to Michael, was to uh, show the uh, futility of trying to uh, place uh, timelines on predicting the future of events and how they unfold. It just, uh, it seems like every time we try to put numbers on it or, or um, quantify it in some way that uh, we get thrown off a little bit. So uh, to, today as we were talking about the future, I think we should keep that in mind. Um, I'd like to uh, make a few remarks about what I feel are the, um, feel is the future of the psychedelic experience. Um, first, um, I believe that we're going to see an increased understanding of the 
way that the human nervous system functions. In other words, we're going to be able to learn more and more and more about how the brain works, how neurons work, how synapses work. And that increased understanding of the brain is going to lead to an increased ability to produce new psychoactive compounds with more specific uh, and precise effects. So that's uh, uh, it's also going to lead to the development of um, new maps. As we as we learn the uh, the way that the brain works, we're going to also develop a uh, a corresponding metaphorical map for understanding uh, the future of uh, of uh, uh, unfolding of the new territories that have not yet been charted with psychedelics. Um, Third, I think we're going to see an integration of the ancient wisdom of the East and of shamanism uh, into modern science. I think we see that we see that happening already with the paradigmatic shifts, uh, the new physics. Um, but I think that uh, we're going to see a, a blending of uh, this uh, this uh, ancient insight with uh, with uh, modern uh, sensibilities. Um, fourth. I see new technologies developing um, for expanding uh, mind, uh, expanding uh, the technology of mind expansion beyond uh, drug the drug experience. One of those may be biofeedback and brain machines. Um, as you know, uh, biofeedback uh, was in an infant state back in the early 60s, but now we're beginning to learn more and more about how the brain works and how about how um, biofeedback uh, can change our, our, our consciousness. We're going to also see the interrelationship with that with brain machines. We're going to also see um, uh, the creation of um, virtual reality uh, apparatus, which can simulate uh, inner experiences. Um, in any event, what, what this is going to do is it's going to take the psychedelic experience beyond just drugs to a, a new synergism, to, um, to create a new synergism where um, we can blend all of these various diverse elements into uh, something gr greater than just drugs or uh, shamanistic rituals or the new technologies, but a, uh, a, uh, a new culture. Um, then um, I see this as having a, a tremendous impact on um, society as uh, we develop uh, ways of integrating these insights into our society. I think that we need to develop an uh, uh, institutional basis for consciousness change, for the new therapies, for um, the new humanistic therapies, for transpersonal therapies, and blending all these things together and creating an institutional framework for the use of these things. And it's been talked about for years. Uh, Dick Alpert, back in the in the uh, in the in the mid '60s, talked about a internal flight agency, I believe he called it, in which um, in which uh, we would uh, have licensing for uh, uh, psychedelic trips. People would uh, have places where they could go and they could learn how to use them, and um, and uh, take out uh, take out trip licenses and uh, and these. This, but it, it makes sense to me. I mean, it's, it's kind of an in-between between complete laissez-faire, let it all go, and the current situation we have now with, with, uh, with uh, complete control. 
So I see that uh, we need the need for the psychedelic uh, center to evolve, and so that's that's what my vision of the future. Well, I uh, <clears throat> I live in the Midwest, and I only always enjoy my trips to the West Coast. <clears throat> <laughs> and uh, when. I got the invitation to attend this conference. I looked at this and I thought, I can't afford to go to the West Coast for this weird conference. So I put the invitation away and sometime later I got a call from Ted and he said, did you get our invitation? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, where are you coming? And I said, I really can't afford to fly out there. Well, if we pay your way, will you come? We think it's very important that you come. Uh, I'm a reductionist sort of scientist and I feel like among maybe perhaps a few others, you're a token minority. A person here. Um, <clears throat> I rode on a, an airplane a few years ago with a fellow who had just finished a residency in psychiatry, and I, I was very excited about the work I did, and I talked to him about doing research with LSD and animals, and I started talking about some of the work that Stan Groff had done giving LSD to humans, and he looked at me in total horror and said, you mean they actually gave LSD to humans? <laughs> <clears throat> And he had just finished a residency in psychiatry. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not going to spend a long time giving you comments and past history. I really got interested in this field as a child. And my first exposure was in the manufacture of gunpowder and pyrotechnics. And I suppose you could consider that now I'm into mental pyrotechnics <laughs> to some extent. The, the sad... The fact of the matter is, though, relating back to this psychiatrist, um, there are, if this were an audience with all the scientists in the world, and I said, how many people in here are doing research on how psychedelic agents work, there would be two hands raised in the whole world, mine and one other fellow, in, at least in a university setting, uh, <laughs> and funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. It's a great tragedy to me that, that I can design these molecules right and left and I can put them into rats and I can measure receptor binding profiles. But the big question is, what do they do in man? We invented an LSD analog that's twice the potency of LSD in man, but we can't study it clinically because of the taboo. If LSD had been used as a clinical agent in the 1960s and had been legitimatized, Smith, Klein and French and Upjohn and Syntex and all these companies would have research groups employing perhaps dozens of chemists and pharmacologists doing the work that I alone basically try to do through funding by the government. And my plea to you would be uh, to, if you ever consider going to graduate school, or you know somebody in chemistry who wants to do this, there really aren't very many people. I'm a very big fish in a very tiny pond. And I think that's a real tragedy. Whether or not these drugs ever find utility in, in therapy or in spiritual growth or anything else, they're a totally fascinating class of psychoactive agent. They relate to the process of dreaming and consciousness and spiritual revelation and how, how we see the environment that we live in and how we perceive it and who we are, the basic question of what is man. That alone ought to stimulate someone to do research in this area. And the field in a university setting and a legitimate setting is devoid of people doing this kind of work nowadays. And there's really no reason for it. Um, I've worked with a fellow now, an MD, who's gotten an IND to give a psychedelic to humans. 
and other people could do it if they would. It takes an MD, admittedly. It takes a lot of patience. I'm an obsessive compulsive type person, and I'm very tenacious and anti-authoritarian. So I've worked for a long time to get into this position, but it's not a position that someone else couldn't get into if they wanted to. Had people like me or others not done this, in terms of legitimate scientific research, there would be virtually nothing today and in the foreseeable future. So that's a real tragedy that I see in terms of future research, that not enough bright people in psychology and cognitive science and organic and medicinal chemistry and pharmacology are going into these areas. Not enough psychiatrists out of fresh out of uh, medical school and residencies are even aware of the possibilities that LSD could present in studying cognitive processes. So I would just make that comment uh, as my uh, brief introduction, so to speak. Thank you. Because my first interest in this field actually goes back about uh, gee, almost 30 years now. I was a sound man, and uh, this gentleman that needs no introduction at the end of the table came to give a talk about uh, a new drug called LSD. Well, I was, uh, I was an undergraduate, and I was interested in uh, all kinds of gadgets and sound and media and motion pictures and... Uh, uh, dreamed of becoming a physician. And uh, when he started talking about LSD, he said, you remember when you were a little kid and you'd go home and you'd turn on the TV and you'd go channel 4, channel 6, channel 11, channel... Well, if you try LSD, it's all the channels at once. (laughs) I think he got me right there. He was also saying things like, tune in, turn on, and drop out. (laughs) <laughs> well, my that, came, that came from Marshall McLuhan, you know. <laughs> my, my professor said, uh, he's being irresponsible. He's got the credentials. He's got the degrees. Don't listen to him. <laughs> I didn't believe them, even though I paid attention to their advice. I sit here now at the other end of the spectrum having spent 20 years of my adult life doing legitimate LSD research and struggling with the government to get the permission to do that work. And I think I tend to agree with my professors. Tune in, turn on, and drop out is irresponsible. It absolutely denies the way that psychedelics have ever been used in human history. Throughout human history, they've always been used to take us to another dimension, to a dimension where we can get meaning, where we can bring meaning back to our cultures. They haven't been used for countercultural purposes. They haven't been used for revolutions in the external sense of the word. They've been used to find deeper meaning inside, to make us better citizens, to help us to change this country, to change this world. They haven't much been used in societies as large as ours. I guess in, it feels to me sometimes like in struggling with the government, it's a, it's a very small group of people that are doing this kind of work. And there are a lot more people who are taking psychedelics and having wonderful experiences and who form a, a counterculture that really can be a support group in a way, but it's also very dangerous for people who are involved in legitimate research. Um, 
so I walk here a narrow line among friends. Um, though I'm sure, as have been mentioned, there are probably are representatives of the Food and Drug Administration and the DEA out there. Hi, gang. <laughs> I think we really need some kind of standards for psychedelics, which we're advocating. Some kind of standards for what represents ethical use of psychedelic substances. And some summary of what's been learned from our history of what represents real positive uses for these substances. Because there are real abuses. And we found some of them over the ensuing years from when I uh, first met Tim and found him such a charming and wonderful guy. Well, over the 20 years, I kind of uh, rambled back and forth, really, between mainstream science and, um, or at least mainstream institutions doing research with LSD, with human beings, with cancer patients, with... uh, uh, other professional people trying to get an idea what, uh, how they might become more sensitive as therapists, um, with alcoholics who uh, were looking for inspiration, for a way to turn their lives around, for a way to find meaning. I think that really, when you look at all of the groups of people that I've worked with, there are people who have a crisis of meaning in their life who are really trying to find some renewed inspiration and some direction to go in. But I met a strange character in this process named Carlos Castaneda, who sort of pointed me towards something a little bit different, towards, towards Don Juan and shamanism and Mexico. And being half Latin American, I was quite entranced by that. When I came to the research center on the East Coast, I met a Mexican psychiatrist who was working with uh, shamans in the mountains and took the opportunity to go down there and visit. And it was like taking a journey 5,000 years into our past and entering a place where I could see the similarities between the ceremony that Maria Sabina was running and the, and the LSD sessions that we were running for therapy at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center. I also began to, as I studied LSD and the history of psychedelics, to be able to see that these were enormous forces that through Albert Hoffman's fortuitous discovery were unleashed from a laboratory with no cultural context. And there I was sitting in a hut on a mountainside with a a little old lady who was talking to me about the flesh of God. And as I studied other cultures that used psychedelics, I saw that they all regarded these substances as sacred. They all had extreme reverence for them. So I guess the other message of irreverence that I've heard, I'd like to see the future of psychedelics be involved with a new reverence. A new reverence for psychedelics as a both synthetic and, uh, and uh, organic or natural as um, profoundly meaningful substances that the word drug is really inadequate to uh, encompass or explain. Computers and virtual reality are another track that I've been very interested in for a number of years. And it seemed to me as I went back and forth between here and Mexico, between present day and 5,000 years before, 
that really what shamans do is to use virtual reality environments, to use technology, whether it's the technology of plants and drums and rattles, or it happens to be the technology of, of high-density digital displays and uh, ways of dissolving the barrier between us and our percepts. Uh, one of the things that I feel is fairly inevitable in the future, as Bruce was pointing toward, is that the difference between um, the pharmacology that we know from drugs or plants, from ingesting substances, is going to begin to blur with a better understanding of the pharmacology of experiences. Because as we develop virtual reality devices of such resolution that you can put on something and enter another reality very convincingly, as real as this one, one of the possibilities is to actually monitor neurotransmitter release at the synaptic level and relate that to sequences of experience that are presented to somebody. And through that process, it's possible to develop sequences of experience that produce certain patterns of neurotransmitter release across individuals. So then all of a sudden you have an experience that produces a change in the brain the way that a drug might produce a change in the brain. And so what you begin to be looking at is non-drug pharmacology. So that many of the experiences that we've had with psychedelics that we find profound may have another home in this realm of virtual reality and cyberspace. Again, this is a technology that can be grasped in a profane way and is being developed by our military. It's no less profound than the, than the technology of mind-manifesting substances, no less sacred in its own potential. I hope that we find a way to grasp it in a sacred manner. The military is using it for Nintendo Wars. <laughs> the great challenge that we face in trying to accomplish this is that we come from a culture of narcissism. Narcissism is a fancy psychoanalytic word for not being able to love yourself. As individuals, we suffer from individual narcissism. It's hard for us to love ourselves for who we are. And that's what a lot of people are looking for in this movement. The sad thing is that the possibility to find it is really there, and that's a profound experience. But there's an awful lot of garbage around it, an awful lot of other stuff around it where you can just build up yourself. Oh, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Oh, I've gotten to level 24. I see you're only at level 12. Uh, it's too bad. Why don't you follow my guru? We try to materialize. We bring emptiness to this dimension of meaning that's so much a part of the tools that I'm talking to you about. And our culture suffers from the same thing. A culture needs to love its people. It needs to give, it, give them health care. It needs to educate them. The people are the stuff of which the culture is made. It's give me a sermon. It doesn't need to kill them. It doesn't need to spend all its money on war. Something amazing happened at Woodstock. A nation of peace came alive. And somebody was up there singing a song, Joan Baez, I think it was. 
Ronnie Reagan zapped. Well, Ronald Reagan became president of the United States, and our generation elected him. That's what's wrong with the 60s. That's what's, that's what's wrong with love that isn't love. That's what's wrong with mysticism that isn't mysticism. It doesn't mean that the real thing isn't out there. But it's very hard to find. And there are a lot of very difficult experiences that you have to go through in the process. It isn't so easy. LSD was touted as instant mysticism. That's like instant coffee. It's nice, but it's not the real thing. That's just because mysticism isn't in LSD. It isn't in these substances. It's in us. It's real. And these are all tools for us to realize that. And we're young and we're innocent. We're young and we're innocent. And we embrace the tools in a young, innocent way and we misuse them in a young, innocent way. And I would like to think that we're getting more mature as a society and that we will be able to rise to the occasion and the challenge. We can embrace this in a meaningful way. We can go forward in a positive direction. We can go forward with idealism and love. If we don't, it all will pass into the background. It's passed into the background a hundred times before, I'm sure. When Albert Hoffman had a strange experience riding home from his laboratory on a bicycle, all of this was a, a murky shadow in the background of the consciousness of our society. It'll become that again. I don't want to see that happen. I want us to work to make sure that it doesn't happen. But that takes a lot of responsibility and a lot of hard work. And it takes dealing with people who seem very unreasonable at times in positions of power. So I hope you'll join me in doing that. Thank you. You're next, Rick. Now that there's a war in the Middle East against people and that there's a war against drugs here, which is really against people. Could you just mention your name? Because I'm not familiar with some of you and also a few other people. Bruce, why don't you introduce Rick? Yeah, I'll, I'll introduce Rick again. This is Rick Doblin, who's the president of MAPS, the Multiple Disciplinary Study for the Association for the Study of Psychedelic uh, Drugs. Uh, he's also a doing a, a master's degree at Harvard University um, in political studies, I believe, or public policy. public studies. That's right, yeah. public policy. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, 
Sorry, you're I'm Richard Jensen. Richard Jensen. Richard Jensen. Okay. Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> There's actually one other thing I'd like to do as far as getting us acquainted with each other. And I wonder if, if people could raise their hands if they or a close friend of theirs has had what they might call one of the more moving experiences of their lives with psychedelics. (laughs) 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 Now, this one's a little bit harder. And I'd like to know how many people who either themselves or their close friends have had a brush with the law that have had a legal case against them in this country. Related to drugs of some sort. That's a pretty large number of us. Criminals. So we were among criminals here. <laughs> Outlaws! Outlaws! Okay. I'm in violation of parole just to be with you people. <laughs> Well, today I'd really like to talk about waging war and, more importantly, making peace. Because there is a war that's being declared against drug users and drug abusers indiscriminately. And it's a war that's having a lot of consequences in our lives. And also, there's a lot of people that don't realize that they could be helped by these substances if they could approach them in a safe context. There's people who could use marijuana for cancer chemotherapy to control the nausea. It might really extend their lives some. There's people that are going blind with glaucoma that could use marijuana that aren't able to get it. There's people that could use LSD psychotherapy for LSD addiction. There's people that could use... MDMA for facing terminal illness. There are people that don't realize what they could be getting, and a lot of these people are who we think of as them waging the war against us. And that's where I think waging peace is really necessary. Is to, as long as we talk about how these drugs have helped us to become more of what we are, I think we're frightening a lot of people. <laughs> 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 and I think they deserve you know, to realize that there may be some changes from that but if we can turn it around and start to talk about these drugs used in a medicinal way right now they can't hear shamanistic, religious is a little bit try to show that these substances are for our parents and our grandparents who are dying that these substances are for Ronald Reagan's uh, family who some have cancer, who some have glaucoma. Some, it's for people who are waging the war against us. And they have enormous fears about what we're up to and what we're doing. Just enormous. And we have to deal with those. We have to run right into the research laboratories and say to them that we are ready to be experimented on ourselves. That if they think that there's a generation of people that are going to be 
giving birth to chromosome-damaged babies, that we're going to have birth defects all over. They're going to have to show it in our own families, but we're going to have to open up our families to the researchers. We're going to have to reach out to the government and say, you're talking about us being brain damaged from MDMA. Well, here we are. Prove it. <laughs> there you go. But where it starts to seem more like war is they come and they say, well, in order to prove it, we're going to have to jab you with all these needles. We're going to have to stick you in all these machines. We're going to have to wire you up to all this equipment. We're going to have to take your children away if for some reason or other we think that you're doing drugs and they're harmed by it. Or if you're pregnant and you're a drug addict, we're going to have to separate you from your children. And not only that, we're going to put you in jail. There's just so much of a criminal mindset that's put on drug use. And it's not really something that we can do all that much about. But in the areas that we can work, we're particularly powerful. And I think that those areas have to do with producing honest-to-goodness, genuine information and science. Now, the government's done their very best so far to block the research, so we have a hard time doing uh, actual studies. But to give you an example of what we can do, um, through MAPS, the organization that I'm trying to put together, 130 people, there's only 130 members of MAPS, and together... We funded a conference in Switzerland and a trip to Czechoslovakia that just took place the end of November and December. And Charlie was there, and Richard was there, and many people in this room were there. And what we were doing was meeting with people from a variety of different countries, psychiatrists from Moscow who came as representatives of their Ministry of Health, psychiatrists from Czechoslovakia that used to do LSD research there, psychiatrists from Germany who would like to do this work and are doing work with other substances, and psychiatrists from Switzerland who now are no longer able to do work because temporarily they're completely shut down. So there's nowhere in the world that this work is happening now. And we also brought several people who are doing research for the government on the harms of MDMA so that they could hear from us what we thought were the benefits and so that they could tell us what they thought were the harms. And together we could try to see, is there a way to advance knowledge that would both teach us and teach them. And we found that there was, or so they say. And now it's our time to put it to the test. And we're developing a protocol to submit to the FDA. Charlie is doing a lot of the, the design and others are helping. And as a community, there's a lot of wisdom here, a lot of resources, a lot of talent, and that we can actually develop a credible protocol. Unfortunately, I found out that this odyssey that we have gone on to try to find other countries to do this research, it seemed like Czechoslovakia would be a great place. We've all heard about how wonderful Havel is. He's very sympathetic with all of this. But it doesn't seem like it's going to be happening in Czechoslovakia quite yet. They're still very much in need of American aid. They're still very concerned about alienating us. Russia's in turmoil. It's very difficult to move through bureaucracies in Russia for anything new. Switzerland shut down. At first, I really thought that we would be able to start this work in other countries and then bring the data back home. Well, we need exactly that. We need exactly that. And there is a group of people in the hate 
and around here in this room that I would like to now address specifically people who have used substances and have used MDMA more than 10 times or have never used MDMA or who know people that are totally opposed to the use of drugs and haven't used them. The government has said there is an open door. It's going to be slow. It's going to be very tedious. It has to be extremely thorough. But it's not a world out there where the government is completely stopping everything. They're not successfully able to do that. Plus, enough of their own interests, just the mere fact that Dave Nichols can do work, the mere fact that we can be here today, and I honestly don't know, but I don't believe there's any narcs here. They don't care what we're talking about. They have us blocked at every step of the way. They don't need to find out what we have to say. It doesn't matter to them. They're not going to learn anything. They're not after us in any case except incidentally because they have a mindset that it's what the culture thinks, what the culture is being taught, and they're controlling information, they're controlling research. It, it doesn't matter to them that much what we're doing unless we surface in their area where they're playing, and that's in the, the media, in, but not so much the reports here, but we need facts. We need to contradict facts, and we need to address their fears, and the way is through research. But because it's like waging war, there's a price. It's not easy. And it takes a lot of courage to go into the laboratories, and it takes a lot of courage to stand up and to try to ask ourselves, are we really suffering occasional memory loss? Is that from LSD, MDMA? Is that from aging? What, what is the kernel of truth, if there is any, in what they're saying? And you know, why is it that there aren't more of us moving into their studies. So there's a study at Johns Hopkins that the government has funded that's looking to evaluate the effect of MDMA on individuals. And so far, they're taking 24 people who've used MDMA over 10 times, and they're testing them for four days in the hospital. And they're going to compare this group with a group of people that have used drugs like the MDMA people, but have never used MDMA. So they're looking for people who have done psychedelics, people who have done marijuana, cocaine, other drugs, but just not MDMA. And then they're going to compare them to a group of people that have never done drugs. And it's very difficult to, uh, to get this study completed. And it's a very you know, minimal study. It's a toehold. Who knows what it's going to show. But I'd like to just ask people to reflect on how many of us have paid the price in terms of the laws and the government and the jails being a threat to our lives? It's a heavy price to pay. And it's less of a price to go into these studies and try to show and to change knowledge and to do factual research that we know problems and we should be the first ones to try to really explore them. So I, I just would also like to say that if only 130 people could put together a conference in, in Switzerland, that the group of us here can take the next steps. Because where, where I see we're at now at the FDA is that there's a receptiveness right now for our protocol if we work with terminal patients, if we work with people that are close to dying. I mean, we're talking about them. Everyone is going to be dying. And everyone is a little bit nervous or scared about it. And so the protocol that we're thinking about sending in has to do with terminal patients and also with another group of people who we need to learn a lot from, and that's the people that are suffering from AIDS. The things that they have been able to do 
because their life's on the line, because they recognize it. In terms of doing their own research, they know, again, that facts are the key to their survival. I mean, from what Joey's doing with needle exchange, you can't just do it. You have to do it and study it. And then you have to study it and talk about it. And then you expose yourself to the law. But that's the approach, I think, that will work eventually. And perhaps sooner than later, the medical marijuana cases right now in the appeals court being argued out by a group of excellent lawyers who are mainly Republicans who've taken the case pro bono working for the medical use of marijuana. They've spent over $100,000, this law firm in Washington, D.C. So our allies come from a lot of strange places that we wouldn't expect. And they assigned one of their lawyers who actually was blind to the medical marijuana case. Blind. You know, and marijuana can help people stop going blind. There was, there was in the, uh, the, the uh, three versions of the Oregon Employment Certification, you had right wing fundamentalists filing supporting the Native American Church because the right wing fundamentalists right. said right. that it's <coughs> the right-wing fundamentalists feel under siege by our culture. They said, we'll be, we'll be next, so, we're gonna, so we, we may not agree with these people and their lifestyle, but we're going we're gonna to go through a path for them because if we don't do it for us, then maybe because of the cult, much of the culture doesn't like us. We'll can, we, can we limit the uh, questions oh, right now to... Um, and uh, I think we okay. want to go through the rest of the panel before we open the, uh, the panel for discussion. Okay. Yeah, I'd like. Okay, uh, I'd like to go next to uh, to Charlie Grope here. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I think Bruce wants a snappy comment. Come on, yeah, Bruce. Yeah. Okay, um, my name is uh, Charlie Grobe. I'm a psychiatrist at uh, the University of California at Irvine. I'm really, uh, you know, real delighted to be here today. I'm having a much better time here today than I did last year at the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association. <laughs> so, a lot, a lot more to think about. A lot more, uh, a lot, lot more possibilities come up here. Um, as uh, Rick Do- uh, Doblin mentioned, um, I've uh, with uh, uh, Rick's uh, backing, I've been, along with my colleagues at UC Irvine, working on a protocol to submit to the FDA to examine the, uh, the clinical efficacy of uh, MDMA in a, uh, a, uh, a subject group that, for which we really have no, or we could offer very little in terms of help, and that's those individuals with um, terminal illness. Um, certainly there are other um, subject groups which might benefit from uh, such unique substances as uh, MDMA and the other uh, psychedelics, yet we felt for a variety of reasons we would undertake a, uh, a strategy in terms of uh, getting uh, sanction from the authorities uh, to work with these substances with the terminally ill. Again, for whom we have very little to offer, uh, that's number one. For whom uh, the concern of long-term adverse uh, effects is uh, not a pragmatic concern. 
And then finally, looking back to the early work at uh, Spring Grove, Maryland, where uh, Rich Jensen was some years ago, along with Dan Groff and Albert Curland, where they utilized uh, LSD as well as DMT in, in efforts to relieve the suffering of um, terminally ill uh, patients with very, very impressive results. So that's why we're undertaking uh, this, uh, this tact. I believe that when it comes down to designing a strategy to pursue obtaining sanction to work with these substances from the, uh, the authorities, we need to uh, initially look at uh, conditions people might have that are refractory or not responsive generally to conventional treatments. Uh, these might include uh, uh, alcohol, severe alcohol and severe substance abuse. It might uh, include uh, severe uh, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. Uh, although we probably could find applications in a number of areas, I think we need to be somewhat uh, circumspect in, uh, in coming up with our initial uh, strategies. Once we get our foot in the door, then I think all sorts of possibilities might possibly open up. Um, in terms of my own um, interest in um, uh, psychedelics, I, it extends quite a long time uh, back. Uh, uh, some many years ago, I actually took Dr. Leary's advice and I turned on, uh, tuned in, and dropped out, of, at least from college. I think my parents still want to talk to you about that. <laughs> but I, I, I dropped back in, and um, one of the. Uh, <laughs> and I'll say that, uh, you know, when I, um, after I dropped out of college, I worked with as uh, Stan Krippner's research assistant at the Maimonides Dream Research Lab, where I would have to st stay up all night monitoring EEGs and waking up people over uh, intercom systems and asking them about dreams. And uh, when I wasn't simply trancing out on the EEG tracings, I was doing a lot of readings, include uh, uh, a number of uh, works on psychedelic drugs that Stan had in his uh, library or in his office at that time. And I remember distinctly the night I read The Politics of Ecstasy, and upon finishing it, uh, felt, boy, this is what I got to do. This is great. I mean, the potential to help people. I mean, what if, you know, one-tenth of what he's talking about could be true? <laughs> <laughs> we might really have something. It's really two-thirds true. <laughs> so I went back to school and uh, was uh, stunned to perceive that uh, it was a, uh, going back to school, the pre-med, the medical school, the training, not only turned out to be a very uh, depleting, even dehumanizing experience, but it was a very uh, confusing affair. There was enormous pressure in contemporary medicine and psychiatry not to look at the models of treatment that Dr. Leary and uh, Stan Groff were exploring some 20, 30 years ago. Uh, keep in mind that when we look back into the 50s and the early 60s, research with psychedelics was one of the most exciting areas in all of psychiatry. There was tremendous anticipation uh, as, as to the potential these substances had, uh, not only in understanding the processes of mind, but in, uh, for us to learn how to help people, help people for whom we really couldn't get to. Uh, unfortunately, uh, because... Uh, the cat getting out of, out of the bag, let's say. Uh, research was uh, shut down in the, in the late 60s and has become absolutely moribund since then. Uh, I remember in medical school, uh, in my more uh, depressing moments, cramming for exams in the library, staggering to my feet after not having gotten up for five hours and 
staggering over to Index Medicus to see if there was anything in the past month written on lysergic acid, diethylamide. And uh, except for what goes on in uh, cat retina or salamander reflex, there wasn't, wasn't a whole lot. Interest, uh, <laughs> interest fell flat uh, to the great, uh, to the loss of all of us. And, um, <laughs> but I, uh, I hung in there. I didn't know if I was going to turn back. I didn't know what, what quite to do. I also remember at one point we had to present a synopsis of a research study to a uh, public health seminar, and I chose uh, Stan Groff's work on the treatment of the terminally ill with LSD, uh, which appeared in 1972 in the uh, International Journal of Pharmacopsychiatry. Just a, 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 as moving a scientific study as you'll ever find, and I uh, presented the paper to my class, and... Uh, they had no idea what I was talking about. I mean, they thought I was a normal person, but uh, I mean, the looks I got that day were, uh, were uh, somewhat dissettling. Um, well, there, let, let me just say, Dave Nichols earlier mentioned that he was astounded to see that the psychiatric resident he met on the plane knew nothing of... Uh, uh, the, uh, the clinical potential of uh, LSD. Uh, that is a very, very uh, common, uh, almost um, uh, generalizable thing that you find within uh, medical students, within uh, trainees, even within young physicians. They have no idea that these substances were once viewed as having an extraordinary potential. And it's just a shame that these substances have been lumped into common drugs of abuse. They've been profaned and, uh, uh, and have remained so, at least in uh, professional circles, for some years. I am becoming more optimistic, and I, uh, I should say perhaps I'm, I should say that Rick Doblin's optimism is <laughs> contagious. <laughs> and um, I'm uh, beginning to, uh, within, uh, among my professional colleagues, to speak up about how I see some of the real issues uh, are with uh, psychedelic drugs, and uh, my uh, my colleague uh, Gary Bravo, who's here today, and I have um, uh, published in the uh, in the you know the the uh, hardcore psychiatric literature some thoughts on psychedelics, and I've actually been somewhat uh, surprised that just about all the feedback we've gotten has been positive. Uh, uh, you know, I have not as yet at least gotten a, a notice from Sacramento asking me to uh, uh, turn in my, my medical license, although <laughs> after my talk today, who knows? <laughs> in which case, I'll move to Hawaii. Okay. Um, so I, I do feel that, uh, or I'm hopeful, that we're on the threshold of perhaps re-examining uh, the area of psychedelics and the degree to which they may be helpful in the relief of, um, of, of human suffering. Um, you, know, re, you know, physicians and psych in general, psychiatrists in particular, are, let's say, at a very uh, difficult and tenuous juncture. Uh, physicians... Um, uh, you not, not only are heirs to the traditions involved with healing, they're, they're heirs to the traditions involved with being the, a part of the priesthood, being the protectors of the dogma. And we may be coming to the time where we're going to have to examine uh, uh, wh which will take priority, our role as healers and uh, our, our commitment, our dedication, our oath to help relieve suffering versus our, um, our uh, support and entrenchment in the 
and status quo and convention. Um, I, uh, l let me mention just a couple of other uh, uh, related areas. Uh, the work I do at UCI is generally with young people, adolescents and uh, young adults. And I am astounded and horrified as to the degree of misinformation that exists among young people today. And I believe this, this misinformation often leads to very, very tragic results. The kids today uh, really have a very, very poor appreciation as to um, the, the, the drugs that they utilize. They've more or less been uh, force-fed a uh, concoction of, uh, of distortion, um, uh, exaggeration, and uh, misinformation that really gets many of these kids into terrible, terrible trouble. Um, I'll give you a, a brief case history of a kid I uh, work with recently, or actually a friend of a kid I work with recently. Uh, a group of uh, kids out in a, uh, Southern California in a, uh, a, a poor, uh, relatively poor uh, desert town who, who had been using uh, marijuana for some years as their drug of choice. And as we know, it, uh, if you look at the data, it is a normative uh, experience of adolescents to, at the very least, experiment, have some experience with, uh, with illicit drugs. These kids had chosen marijuana as their drug of choice, and although uh, one could perhaps make some statements as to their uh, general uh, lack of uh, motivation to get ahead in the world, they were generally doing all right, utilizing a, uh, by and large, benign drug. Well, our government has begun to devote tremendous resources and energies to, uh, to stopping the, um, the use of marijuana. Their interdiction program on, on, with, with marijuana has been very, very successful, and one of the outcomes has been, at least in this poor desert town, that the marijuana supplies dried up. Now, if you, uh, if you look at the data, if you, and if you read such um, uh, uh, people as uh, Ron Siegel, you get a sense that perhaps there may be something intrinsic to the, uh, uh, the human being, particularly those uh, uh, d you know, who are young, that they need to alter their uh, state of consciousness. The previously benign uh, uh, vehicle for doing that was no longer available. They turned to what was available, which initially was uh, methamphetamine, followed by the discovery on the outskirts of town, a patch of jimson weed growing. So the new trip for these kids was mixing um, uh, uh, methamphetamine and jimson weed, both of which they knew nothing about. Well, the outcome was tragic. One day, one of the boys became acutely agitated, very confused, ran out of the house he was staying in, where he was with his friends. His friends couldn't catch him. He ran out into the middle of town, behaved in a very agitated, disturbing manner. The uh, townspeople called the, the police. The police uh, arrested him, cuffed him, put him in the back of the police car, drove him to jail, put him in a, in a cell, let him cool off for a little while, came back an hour later, and he was lying dead on the floor. Post-mortem results indicated a cardiac arrest. The results of methamphetamine, uh, detora, which is uh, the active component in um, Jimson uh, weed and fear. This kid was literally scared to death. And I, I truly see him as a casualty of the, uh, of the drug wars. And... And I, you know, I see that uh, uh, 
uh, part of our purpose here is, um, in, 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 I guess, in part to reminisce, in part to speculate, in part to examine the potentials of utilizing these substances in um, sanctioned, approved, kosher uh, uh, clinical settings, clinical research settings. And yet I, I believe another purpose of ours is to disseminate accurate information and really uh, to... Um, help implement a, a, a or revive an outlook which will counter some of the uh, the inaccuracies and distortions that uh, our uh, war on drugs has uh, has provided. Uh, to paraphrase uh, Albert Hoffman, whom we met with in uh, Switzerland, uh, Dr. Hoffman, who, by the way, for his age, which is the mid-80s, is about the most remarkable specimen I've ever seen. And if he's a testimony to the long-term effects of these substances... <laughs> But what, what, what Dr. Hoffman did tell us, did share with us, was his belief that um, instead of all this uh, attention at, uh, and effort, uh, energy uh, directed at the, um, the war to end drugs, how about a little attention to drugs which will end war? Yeah. Ah, that's uh, been wonderful. <laughs> okay. We've got some real comedians on this panel. <laughs> we've got some real good preachers. <laughs> and we've got some uh, powerful uh, sociological, political. I mean, we, got, we should take this on the road. <laughs> I made a uh, clerical error in my head, uh, and I thought this was going to be about the future of psychedelics, but it's more about the future of psychedelic research, right? It's, it's open, Tim. I can prove that, Psychedelic yeah. experience. Yes. I quickly learned it was open, and I proved <laughs> that, yeah. But <laughs> we don't have a panel of uh, follow the leader people here, do we? Uh, <laughs> we're, You know, when I was uh, younger and more brash, uh, when uh, people, <laughs> people say, uh, well, we've got to get government approval, we've got to get government funding, we've got to get government approval, so I mean, you know, well, uh, the more I think about it, uh, at the last thing I want to do is to turn my brain over to a government-authorized agent. <laughs> You know, uh, the, your comments about uh, the medical profession, which uh, come up a couple of times here, and the awesome uh, narrow-mindedness that you guys have been talking about. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's face it. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, the medical profession was right up there. It was very honored. You know, there was the doctor in town that always had the Buick. Um, and uh, uh, when I went to, through... Uh, Ph.D. training, you know, for, until very recently, you know, you didn't have to apologize to be an M.D. <laughs> but recently, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the evidence is that uh, people are not uh, joining up to study medicine as much because, good God, 
uh, half of your time is spent defending yourself against uh, you know, suits from uh, lawyers who are suing you. <laughs> so the easier thing is to become a lawyer, <laughs> which they're doing. <laughs> and uh, the medicine has, I think, lost its glamour to those of us who watch the general po population. Uh, I've had some... Uh, discouraging and disappointing and depressing in conversations with students in colleges. And uh, those of you that are not close to college, uh, you'd be shocked at the, the way morale has dropped and the way a sense of uh, confidence in themselves has dropped among uh, college students today. Over and over again, I'll have this uh, conversation with a student driving in from the airport and said, uh, what are you studying? Marketing. <laughs> what are you studying? Finance. <laughs> what are you studying? Law. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I say, yeah, uh, communication, that's good. Uh, but, uh, uh, and uh, I, I said, this one guy, it's, it's chilling. A, a, a 20 year old college student would say to you, Well, I'm going to study accounting, and then I'm going to go and I'm studying legal of law, and then I'm going to end up as a law clerk. See, so he knows that in 10 or 15 years he's going to be uh, doing uh, tax law. Now that spooks me. <laughs> I mean, and I say to him, I, I tell him, uh, you know, in a nice, friendly way, it's my job to uh, spook people a little bit. And I say to him, you know, that spooks me. Uh, he, said, he said, why? He said, well, she, you know, uh, you're an intelligent person, and uh, how, how come, you know, you could have all the, well, is that what you really want to be? You'll know I want to be a doctor. Uh, why can't you? He says, well, mom and dad, like every other mom and dad, they both have to work just to keep ends uh, meeting after the uh, last uh, 10 years of the Bush Reagan administration. And uh, so this they simply can't afford to put me through um, four years of uh, medical school or of graduate school. And the statistics that keep going up, is, isn't it? Like to put a kid through four years of college now costs, what, 200 more thousand dollars? And to think, here's a country uh, supposed to pride itself on empowering the individual and all that stuff, and here are intelligent uh, young women and men who, uh, who can't uh, pursue, you know, the very word, liberal arts. Then <laughs> 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 it makes uh, Ronald Reagan go red, and that's going to go red. Liberal and arts. I mean, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse Helms busts these people. I mean, uh, I'm kind of circling around this notion about medicine losing its, some of its glamour, but partly because it, uh, the path is not as quick and it's so hard work and because you're really helping other people instead of helping yourself. And uh, there are many re Another reason for it is the work that many of us did in the 1950s when a uh, uh, small but increasingly large group of us in the 50s decided that the way to uh, help individuals with some sort of behavioral problems or problems of you know, bad thinking or whatever, uh, was not to, like, get an MD and then put him on a couch, which is not very uh, inspiring to one's self-confidence, and keep them there for a while. So, uh, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, we, uh, we, we uh, started experimenting with the notion of group therapy, bringing together people in small groups. And, uh, and I told you yesterday how this was uh, doctors, the same, you're, you're, you're the famous doctor on the... Uh, Psychiatrist in the airplane that you met. I mean, he was telling us then, well, that's illegal, immoral, and constitutional to let patients. Uh, but uh, you know, we won that. Uh, we won that, and uh, I think that the goal 
to uh, kind of get approval of medical people is looking, you know, less and less uh, cogent. 1950, if you were to take a phone book, yellow pages of the phone book, and you'd look through the idea of where is there anything in the way of psychological help? And you'd see under uh, physicians, you'd have uh, pediatricists and podiatrists. Oh, yeah, there's psychiatrists. And uh, there were very few, if any, psychologists listed in the yellow pages, 1950. I mean, a psychologist didn't list themselves in the yellow page. You were supposed to do research on uh, Skinnerian, blah, 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 and all that. So that uh, the notion, really, literally, uh, these are the facts, Max. Um, uh, and, and until the early 50s, the whole province of behavior change, changing the mind, uh, so forth, was the province not only just of medicine, but of a specialized version of medicine called psychiatry. Uh, today, I know at least in, it's true in L.A. and I know in San Francisco, if you look up in the yellow pages for people that uh, you offer help uh, to others with uh, mental you know, questions and so forth, uh, the, the, probably the number of psychiatrists has actually gone down, but maybe it's the same. But when you get to psychologists, page after page of, you know, the different, not to mention masseurs, not to mention uh, drug counselors and marital counselors and all the kind of children there, and on. So literally, there are probably 15 or 20 pages of the yellow pages devoted to non medical uh, approaches, uh, which uh, I, I, I take to. Uh, since I, too, am a reductionist uh, science, David, uh, <laughs> uh, I like scores, scores, statistics like that. Of course, uh, I must tell you, uh, David, that uh, I'm not a reductionist scientist all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, kn I knew that, Tim. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> And without uh, outing you... <laughs> Or pulling you out of the closet, you're not a reductionist scientist all the time. <laughs> Nobody's supposed to know that. I know. <laughs> uh, don't think about yeah, uh, putting people in categories like uh, when I said uh, turn on, tune, and drop out. You know, shit. We didn't mean you just uh, leave home and uh, don't take a shower and uh, ever and. Uh, uh, listen to Beatles records and smoke marijuana. You know, I mean, uh, the idea was you keep you have to keep dropping out every minute, every hour, every day, or anything like that. Uh, um, like people, and that's that's uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a basic. We've uh, learned that from Einstein in the 20th century. You're not anything very long. You keep changing and improving. Uh, we, uh, the, uh, people ask me what my uh, my uh, zodiac sign is now. I say. Uh, any fucking sign I want. What <laughs> <laughs> would you like? Sexy Scorpio? Profound policy? I can do it. I can play a, a 12 role. That's not bad. When you were throwing rising signs, I, mean, I can't handle a lot of that. But. <laughs> <laughs> but people ask me, am I vegetarian? I say, damn right. I eat vegetables. <laughs> not all the time. <laughs> well, what about now? You don't eat meat, do you? And I said, not me, brother. Less than 5% of the time, okay? <laughs> Maybe an hour a day, what's that? <laughs> oh, by the way, speaking of, uh, speaking of objective science and, and scorekeeping, 
That was a wonderful letter that was written from Albert Hoffman. Could we have a printed copy of that available? I mean, that is a... Boy, what a... You know, at the end, uh, by the way, I agree with you. Uh, he's a great testimony. <laughs> yeah, we'll put him on the, uh, on the Super Bowl commercials. <laughs> uh, But Hoffman had that wonderful idea, which I'm sure all of us have had it. Why can there be a simple business of scorekeeping? Why shouldn't, not the government, fuck the government, but uh, uh, why couldn't, uh, it wouldn't take a lot of money at all to have a real uh, in-depth kind of poll questionnaire study uh, and uh, get uh, 20,000 people uh, who took LSD and 20,000 people who did not match according to age, sex, blah, 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 and all that, and then find out uh, where they were at. Uh, now, of course, uh, when you get uh, to the 60s and the 70s, a lot of the people that uh, took LSD did not go to Vietnam, <laughs> uh, so they didn't come back in a body bag. Uh, uh, but that's just a side issue here. Uh, the reason why there has never been any such study, because I'm totally confident that it's a study of you took... Uh, um, 10,000 people who took LSD in the last 20 years and matched them against people, I'd be very happy to stand up with my uh, brothers and sisters, uh, and I think they would, uh, uh, I don't know, they might not be making as much money. <laughs> uh, I'd like to see that kind of study done. Um, hey, I mean, and by the way... Um, being a, uh, I'm a really an obsessive uh, psychometric uh, scorekeeper, you know, and I really believe in keeping score. And uh, I'm very, uh, I was very interested in the 60s and 70s. I'd watched the Gallup polls about how many people were using marijuana, and we were kind of keeping it as, oh my God, it's incredible. It Five million, then 10 million, then 20 million, then 30 million, got it up to 60 million pretty soon. Daryl Gates, the chief of police of uh, my hometown, Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, He's the guy that said that uh, marijuana smokers should be taken out and shot. Right. <laughs> Not hard drug users, because number one, his son is a hard drug user. <laughs> I, I, he had some logic for doing it, but then we went down. Uh, uh, Daryl Gates said about in 1970 sometime, he said, uh, 96 percent of the high school students in L.A. County have taken marijuana before they graduate. See? Oh, uh, now, number one, I didn't believe him. But number two, if that were true, would you want your kid to be that 4% of alienated? <laughs> Anti-social? <laughs> Lonely people? <laughs> I mean, 94%. But now we come to today when it's all changed. Uh, the, uh, I was uh, amused by a historian. You know, anything that doesn't have to do with uh, Bush's uh, apocalyptic desire to have an Armageddon war with the Arabs, uh, anything that doesn't fit that, you can't find any, any, uh, any much news in the paper what's going on. But there was a little, the war on drugs gets it. The war on drugs were winning it because uh, for the first time they've been keeping statistics the percentage of high school students who have used marijuana has dipped below 50%, something like 48%. Well, 
Oh, Jesus, you know, I'm amazed that 48% would be dumb enough to admit it, you know. <laughs> because uh, you know, uh, I've been following, uh, the, you know, it's my job, I'm a statistician, but 15 years ago, like Daryl Gates said, if a man in a suit with a clipboard came around and said, do you smoke marijuana, kid? Yeah, sure, don't you? I mean, you know, yeah. Even, even if you didn't, you would, because you, know, you, didn't, want, you didn't want to be, you know. Um, today, you're a high school kid, and some guy in a suit and a clipboard comes up and says, you smoke marijuana? Who, me? <laughs> so we've got to be semantically, linguistically correct here. The, the situation is not how many people are smoking marijuana, but how many will admit it to a man with a clipboard. <laughs> Oh, and I, I agree about the stuff about marijuana. You know, that's interesting. I uh, make part of my living. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I don't know if I should apologize for this, but I, uh, <laughs> I debate uh, very right-wing uh, establishment authoritarian types like G. Gordon Liddy. And, uh, and, uh, I uh, frequently debate a man named Peter Bensinger who for five years was the head of the dread DEA. And... Uh, I've been amused and uh, bemused and astounded to, to listen to the way these right-wing people talk about drugs. You're talking about doctors not knowing about uh, the, uh, the effects of... Gordon Liddy has never had an unauthorized thought in his life. <laughs> and all he has... Gordon, I love to... I, I really like Gordon a lot, and I really treasure him for this thing that anytime you want to know with the kook right wing in the CIA Pentagon thinking, he'll tell you. One, two, three. <laughs> so it's, I mean, you don't have to worry about what the motives are. So it's, it's amazing. Uh, he, he's, of course, he knows, he knows everything because he's been told by this, you know, them. What to, what to, uh, so it's kind of curious to me as, an, as a student of semantics and linguistics, you know, to, to, uh, the word marijuana to Liddy, and he goes... Yeah, he's been taught. That's called uh, lack of motivation syndrome, something. You know, but so uh, one toot and your um, your slack face with him. That's so uh, that uh, LSD. Uh, you you run out in the front of uh, cars in the highway and get killed, or you jump out a window. <laughs> well, it's true that the CIA people that used LSD jumped out window, but <laughs> that doesn't tell us much about LSD. It tells us a lot about set and setting. <laughs> So the lady uh, is, uh, he's no problem, because everyone knows he doesn't know anything about drugs. Uh, students say, well, what are you going to try about? Have you ever taken it? He says, yes, I have at one time been authorized. Uh, indeed, I was commanded mine, by medical officers to take a drug <laughs> to counter pain. <laughs> said, uh, I felt the invitation. Yes, I felt wonderful. <laughs> And I respectfully ask the surgeon, please do not command me to take this again because I don't want to uh, go any farther with it. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's Gordon Liddy. But Bensinger, he makes his living. Uh, he, uh, he's now president of a company that uh, makes you pee in a bottle and he goes around scaring uh, companies. Uh, you know that there's one company alone, it's called Syntex or something, $500 million a year they get for forcing people to pee in bottles? I mean, 
And that's, that's called the drug abuse industry. But anyway, Bensinger is now uh, very involved in the drug abuse industry. So it's, it's amazing to me that uh, he spends 95% of his time attacking marijuana. Right? He will occasionally say, oh, yes, alcohol is a bad drug. I don't like that. But, uh, of course, we're not going to... He never mentions nicotine. Well, that's because of Jesse Helms, I guess, but uh, from North Carolina. But it's astonishing, you know, all the statistics, uh, you know, of death and fatality. Uh, and uh, crack, uh, no, and then he's trying to scare you by saying, I don't care if you students get high, but what I care about is if you fly my plane. I don't want you coming into LAX, you know. And then he cites the case, the one case of the... Uh, Engineer on an Amtrak that uh, a test showed that he had uh, ingested marijuana sometime within the 14 days before it happened. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was uh, joking with him once, and I said something. There was one time where there was a, a worker forgot to put a door down in a, in a ferry in Holland, and 200 people died because of that. So I said, you better check that, Peter. That guy was probably high in marijuana. You know what he did? <laughs> he went to the office the next day and tried to do it. I mean, they're looking for some way <laughs> to scare people about marijuana. And you're right. In your case about your, your young people, that's really tragic. What they've done to marijuana is they've made it so hard to get. I have trouble getting it. <laughs> I mean, This guy, Bensinger, he says, for example, he's, he's got a more sophisticated line. He says, uh, well, you know, I say something like, uh, anyone with more than one finger forward knows that uh, marijuana is much, more, much less dangerous, one-tenth percent dangerous as alcohol, and 90% of the audience will cheer when you say that. He says, that's not true. That's not true. Because marijuana contains 279 ethanols or something, and alcohol contains only one. So they have. <laughs> marijuana is 279 times more dangerous because of the gets in your fatty tissues. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Smoke marijuana is going to get in your fatty tissues. <laughs> boys, uh, you may be having an A, a cup problem. See, boys, you're going to lose your, uh, lose, you definitely lose your masculinity if you smoke marijuana. And what's the other matter? Oh, yeah. You lose your immune system, so you're going to get AIDS. I mean, it goes down the list, and I'm, I can't believe it. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before I go, I'd like to suggest that you go back and listen to the part in this talk where Rick Doblin was speaking about the war on drugs and how we can move the discussion from the government's lies about going crazy on LSD and the evils of cannabis to discuss the medical and scientific uses of these amazing chemicals. And now think about the state of this so-called war on drugs today. Right now, here in the USA, there are more people involved in the growing and distribution of cannabis than there are dental hygienists. And the U.S. marijuana market is bigger than the NFL or movies. And the ground for this progress was cleared by men and women like the ones that we just heard from. A perfect example comes from a recent Salon 2 podcast from Symposia's Psychedelic Storytime in Victoria. Do you remember the first story that was told? It was by a woman U.S. Army veteran who served in Iraq and was discharged after being diagnosed with severe PTSD. After at least one suicide attempt, 
She was fortunately accepted into Dr. Michael and Annie Mithoffer's MAPS-sponsored MDMA study, the study of people suffering from PTSD. Her story is really powerful and worth listening to. Now think about the talk that we just heard that Rick Doblin gave. Now that was back in 1991 when there were fewer than 150 members of MAPS. There were no studies yet approved and even the web wasn't here yet. However, Rick Doblin never gave up and even when faced with some highly improbable odds, he kept going. And people are now being helped thanks to the work of Rick and the rest of this panel and, of course, all of the supporters of MAPS, Arrowhead, Hefter, all of the other organizations that are providing funding for research. Another pioneer whose work stretches back even beyond 1991 is Dr. Thomas Roberts, who we just heard from in the previous podcast from the Salon. If, after hearing the pioneers in today's talk, you would like to explore the possibilities of having a career in the field of psychedelics, then I suggest that you also listen once again to that interview with Dr. Roberts. He has some really good suggestions for you there. And for what it's worth, although Timothy Leary and Bruce Eisner have sadly passed on, everyone else whose name you have heard today is still active, and they remain at the forefront of research into these magical molecules. Maybe it's time for you to join them. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.